Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. By one critical measure, the world's economy is on a slippery slope, a downward slope greased by millions of barrels of surplus oil. The excess production means rock-bottom prices. A good thing, right? Not necessarily, as Martha Teichner will explain in our cover story. The good news? Prices at the pump are way down. I'm thrilled. The bad news? Prices at the pump are way down. What does this symbolize? The crash. Thanks to $30 a barrel oil, this is what a few hundred million dollars worth of idle drilling rigs look like in West Texas. Ahead this Sunday morning, the flip side of low oil prices. The busy bee we're watching this morning is Samantha Bee. She's preparing for her debut as a late-night TV host, yet still found time for a chat with our Serena Altshul. Former Daily Show regular Samantha Bee is about to tread where few women have dared to go. Finally, a woman in the boys' club of late-night television. Looks like she knows just what it takes to make it. The hair, it's kind of my look. But I just got all my hair cut off. Trust me, it's very attractive. Oh. Samantha Bee's full frontal approach to comedy. Later on Sunday morning. After we finish our teas. That's right. Cheers. Cheers. Merlot. Yeah. <laughs> the rock group Coldplay is warming up for a very high-profile performance next Sunday night. And they're leaving nothing to chance, as Anthony Mason will show us. On an L.A. soundstage, Coldplay has been rehearsing for next Sunday's Super Bowl halftime show. You've basically created a stage that's the same size as the Super Bowl stage? Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> Later on Sunday morning... What's the audience for this? It's like a gazillion people. I think it's three gazillion, actually. Watching Coldplay get ready for the biggest gig of their career. Talk about a big break. Actor Bob Odenkirk made the jump from a supporting role in Breaking Bad to the starring role in a series all his own. He talks about that transformation with Lee Cowan. I better call Saul! It's rare that a catchphrase becomes an entire show, and it's rare still to have a spinoff that actually succeeds past one season. It's showtime, folks. But Bob Odenkirk has both. Better Call Saul is an incredible role, and I know it. How the former comedy sketch writer found his destiny in drama. Later on Sunday morning. Major Garrett reports from the campaign front lines in Iowa. Dean Reynolds explores the trustworthiness of political ads. Steve Hartman visits a town in search of a groundhog. Coming up? feel that it's great, you know? A lot less coming out of my pocket. I, I love it. Cheap oil, boon or burden. And later, Barbie gets a makeover. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. For people in the petroleum business, it's been a slippery slope. The plunge in oil prices that's a boon for most of us is a calamity for others. And it's not just producers overseas taking the hit. Our cover story is reported now by Martha Teichner. Hallelujah. I feel that it's great, you know? A lot less coming out of my pocket. I, I love it. Gas under $2 a gallon. I'm thrilled. Under $1.50. Last year, falling pump prices put an extra $115 billion in Americans' pockets. The price of oil has dipped below $30 a barrel. It's all good, right? One big boost to the economy. What does this symbolize? The crash. Well, not so fast. In West Texas, $30 a barrel oil means a deepening economic disaster. What is this? It's a drilling contractor's yard. 
Now, during the boom, what would this have looked like? Empty, completely empty. To oil field consultant Mike Roscoe, this parking lot for drilling rigs symbolizes the American oil and gas industry going broke. In just the last year, more than 900 rigs were idled. The U.S. total down 60%. So each one of these rigs represents how many unemployed people? I'd say a thousand at least. Each one? Absolutely. And how many do you think are sitting here? We quit counting when they got into the 30s. On the road between Midland and Odessa, it's all there to see. The collateral damage caused by low price oil. The auction lots for heavy equipment no longer needed. For the repossessed cars and trucks of the people who've lost their jobs. The pump jacks that aren't pumping. A gallon of water is worth more than a gallon of crude oil right now. Really? Yeah, absolutely. That's another drilling rig. That's north of town. Until he was laid off last spring, Mike Rasco made $17, $1,800 a day overseeing projects for a major oil company. Worldwide, the oil and gas industry has cut more than 275,000 jobs since oil prices peaked at over $100 a barrel in mid-2014. Why? For starters, demand for oil fell. In the past, OPEC has cut production in response. Not this time. Before the oil price collapsed, the assumption was that OPEC would underpin the oil price by cutting production. But the key oil producers in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states, uh, said that we're not going to cut unless other people cut. We collect. Daniel Jurgen is vice chairman of IHS an international information company, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Prize, A History of Oil. Saudi Arabia's basic strategy is to maintain its market share in the global oil market, and that's really been the starting point for them. At the expense of everybody else? Uh, yes. So began a huge game of chicken, with Saudi Arabia and its OPEC partners pumping full blast, Russia, too. And the United States. You've heard of fracking? Pumping water into shale formations to free hard-to-get-at oil and gas? Well, fracking meant that the United States suddenly was producing a lot more oil. So much that for the first time in 40 years, we're exporting it. U.S. oil production went from 5 million barrels a day in 2008 to 9.7 million barrels a day in April of 2015. In other words, U.S. oil production almost doubled in a matter of just a few years. During the good years, Midland and Odessa, Texas turned into boom towns. Same story in Williston, North Dakota. Based on $100 a barrel oil, entrepreneurs borrowed billions of dollars to buy into the bonanza. Workers flocked to the oil patch. I heard about all this big money, so I thought I could get a little piece of that pie, I suppose. So many they had to live in trailer camps, on cots in church halls. Then the price crashed thanks in large part to China's slowing economy. The Saudis and their Gulf state neighbors, with their deep pockets and low-cost oil production, kept pumping and settled in to wait for their competitors to flinch. If prices continue to be low, we will be able to withstand it for a long, long time. The chairman of Aramco, the Saudi state-owned oil company, earlier this month, Feeling the pain in addition to the United States, Russia and Venezuela. And the Saudis hope Iran, about to come back into the oil market in a big way after the lifting of sanctions. The Gulf countries are convinced that Iran has a plot to encircle them. And so this uh, is really not just about oil that's going on, but it's really about the future of the Middle East. Meanwhile, every day, the world is producing something like a million and a half more barrels of oil than it needs. There's an ocean of it out there, 
in massive storage tanks. And right now, at least 100 million barrels are sitting in tankers parked at sea. This past week, the price of crude rose to nearly $36 a barrel on the merest possibility that the Russians and Saudis might talk about cutting production. But even if it happens, sopping up that surplus will take time, which oil field consultant Mike Rasko knows only too well. We joke around here saying things are picking up. They're picking up the house, they're picking up the car, you know. It hits everybody just as hard, but maybe in different ways. What's your situation? They picked up the truck. What I do my business out of, my pickup, it's gone. My, uh, my wife, through stress, has been hospitalized over all of this, you know. Mike Rasco just wants to hang on to his home. He never lived lavishly, even when he could have, so he could weather the bad times. Born and raised in West Texas, this is the fourth bust he's lived through. He knows it will end. As he looks for work every day, he just wonders when. How hard is it to keep your morale up? It's over. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have any morale left. I'm out of pride. I've got a beautiful wife and two good babies to take care of. I do it because I want to be a good husband. I'll be a good old man when it comes back around. Ahead, Ham heads for the heavens. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. January 31st, 1961, 55 years ago today. The date a chimpanzee would boldly go where no man had gone before. For that was the day NASA loaded Ham the Chimp into a Mercury capsule for a suborbital rocket ride from Cape Canaveral. It was a trial run ahead of America's first manned space mission. The rocket? lifted off just before noon, but within a minute began veering higher than intended. Instead of a maximum altitude of 115 miles, Ham soared 157 miles up. The ground crew monitored his vital signs as he experienced both more weightlessness and stronger G-forces than planned. In the end, Ham's capsule overshot the designated Atlantic Ocean landing spot as well by more than 100 miles. But, trooper that he was, Ham was recovered in good physical shape, and the trail he blazed was followed within months by Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin and American astronaut Alan Shepard. As for Ham, he became an instant simian celebrity and went on to enjoy a lengthy second career on solid ground at the National Zoo in Washington. He died in 1983 at the age of 26. Far from forgotten, a plaque now marks Ham's grave at the New Mexico Museum of Space History in Alamogordo. I may not be qualified to be president. Next. But a dramatic camera angle can make me look like a president. A paid political announcement. Here's a milepost by which to remember the week. A makeover for Barbie. Barbie, you're beautiful. Some 57 years after her slim and trim debut, Mattel says it's now about to offer Barbie in three additional new body types, curvy, tall, and petite. She's also being offered in seven different skin tones, 22 eye colors, and 24 hairstyles. The makeover is a response to criticism that the original Barbie doesn't look like a lot of little girls these days. The change also appears to be a response to declining sales down every year since 2012. Even so, some Barbie critics already are saying the new so-called fashionista line still puts too much emphasis on fashion and appearance. 
So will the new refashioned Barbie dolls sell? As we say in the news biz, only time will tell. In this campaign season, trust me is the message of every candidate's TV ad. A proposition Dean Ruddles now puts to the test. This election is about the essence of America, about all of us who feel out of place in our own country. And I've spent my life fighting for children, families, and our country. There are those who say we cannot defeat a corrupt political system and fix a rigged economy. If you're lucky enough to live in Iowa or New Hampshire, political ads like these are just about all you see on television now. Hippo. Crit. One bellows. One bellows malarkey. After a while, they all begin to sound the same. Hi, I'm Gil Fulbright, and the people who bankroll my political career tell me I'm running for president. So here I am. Wait, what was that? I may not be qualified to be president, but a dramatic camera angle can make me look like a president. Mark it. Honest Gil Fulbright isn't a real candidate. He's an actor, and Gil's campaign for the White House is a satire that's been viewed more than three million times on social media. Ideas, policies, morals. These are things I don't need. What I need is $2 billion. It makes you chuckle, but there is a serious point to his pitch. He's just shining a light on how politicians are routinely being bribed by special interest lobbyists and swaying their votes in their favor. And the people who are left out are we, the American people. Josh Silver is the director of Represent Us, the grassroots organization behind Gil Fulbright that's working to pass laws combating the influence of moneyed interest in American politics. But to be successful, you would need to have these guys in Congress vote against their self-interest, right? Well, that's why we're doing what we're doing. Silver's talking about the strategy to basically end-run Washington and begin by focusing on local government, building a movement from the ground up. We know that Washington is not going to fix this problem anytime soon. They don't fix anything anytime soon these days. The only place that there's a bright light right now is in the cities and states. From its office in Florence, Massachusetts, Represent Us brought together an unlikely alliance. The group's advisors include Republicans, Democrats, prominent members of Occupy Wall Street, and the Tea Party. Even disgraced lobbyist Jack Abramoff, who served several years in federal prison after being convicted of conspiracy to bribe members of Congress. Dan Krasner is the political director of Represent Us. Do you find that this is a bipartisan issue? I'm a Republican, and, and conservatives are fed up with the amount of corruption, the fraud, the waste and abuse in government. We're all essentially paying a corruption tax because of, of, the, of, of those problems in government. So we want reform. Represent Us wants to stop elected officials taking money from special interests they regulate, bar them from taking jobs as lobbyists after leaving office, at least for several years, limit their donations from lobbyists, and force organizations which fund political advertising to disclose their donors. We, we know that politicians are spending most of their time raising money, listening to donors, they need to listen to us. In November, Represent Us-backed reforms passed in Maine, Seattle, and San Francisco, and there are plans for more ballot initiatives this year. Hi. Honest Gill is not actually running, and you can't actually vote for him nor could you in the 2014 Kentucky Senate race. I have a deep-seated love for Kentucky that is directly proportional to the amount of money I raised there, 25%. But he was so successful back then as a fundraising vehicle for the Represent Us cause that he's been elevated to the big time. I said, you want to run for president? I went, okay, sure, why not? So now I'm running for president. Politics is easy to, easy to parody. Jimmy Siegel has been making political ads for more than a decade. He was behind one of Hillary Clinton's most memorable ads in 2008. I ordered for the table. I'm looking out for you. 
and he says he's genuinely impressed by Honest Gil. Hi, I'm Gil Fulbright, and I approve of whatever it is my wife is about to read off of this teleprompter. <laughs> the acting, okay, convincing, yeah. I mean, actually, I'd like to have him as a candidate. <laughs> I think there are places in the country we could win. And lead this presidential election is expected to be the most expensive in history. There are predictions the process will cost more than $10 billion. $10 billion. We'll start with uh, Gil Fulbright will be reminding us of that for the next year. And that's a promise he intends to keep. I promise that I will work every day to subtly misdirect that anger so my big money donors can continue to rip you off. Will you go out there and talk to the audience? Start or a little crowd work? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Still to come, the very busy Samantha B. Let's do it, let's do it. And later... Coldplay. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Have you had your picture taken with a black person yet? Well, I don't think so, but I wouldn't mind doing it. That's something you'd be willing to try? Why, certainly. There's plenty of them. I know. Do you have any of them in Montana? We don't, you know? We don't have any. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. She's a busy bee, that Samantha Bee. The former Daily Show comic is about to launch a whole new venture, a hair-raising prospect, some might say. Our Serena Ultra tracked her down. Just fluff. Oh, my. Oh, here it comes. Here comes the beauty shot. Oh, yeah. To promote her debut as one of the few women on late night TV. Oh, my God. <laughs> that looks so good. Former Daily Show correspondent Samantha Bee had to become one of the boys. Finally, a woman in the boys club of late night television. Just one thing. What's that? The hair. It's kind of my look. But I just got all my hair cut off. Trust me, it's very attractive. Oh. And Conan O'Brien had a seriously personal way of welcoming her to his network, TBS. Come here, me. What? Just about a week from now, Samantha Bee launches her Monday night program, Full Frontal. Will you go out there and talk to the audience? Start or a little crowd work? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. TV's only female late night host takes on superheroes. Her show won't feature interviews or comedy sketches. It's not a talk show. Instead, the focus is satire. She's powerful, she's regal, but I don't want her overtly sexual. No, you wouldn't want her to give away the store. And she'll aim at the usual targets, but with her own twist. Last Thursday, my show posted a video on Facebook. And Facebook responded, fake, very fake, fake. Well, you got me. <laughs> Here's the original footage. Ted Cruz did not shoot a panda. He's useless with a gun. The rollout has not been without a few bumps. Someone tweeted me a photograph that was in Vanity Fair, which was all of the male late night hosts, all kind of poised on chairs with martini glasses and drinks and just <laughs> welcoming you into their world. But I mean, there were like 150 of them and I wasn't in the picture, and I felt like there was a space where it would have been so easy to also put me in the picture. And you were already publicly going to be in that landscape. It was pretty public, so I just put myself in the picture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I happened to have a photo of myself as a centaur with laser eyes. How did people react to it? They just sent it around. It just became a whole thing. I mean, it became a thing in a, in a very unanticipated way, and I felt so gratified by that. I was like, all right. That's good. Well, I have tapped into a feeling. Late night television has long been a man's world. Few women succeeded. No matter, says Samantha B. I'm definitely not creating the show and thinking about the weight of that. I, I don't think I could make a single joke. Yeah, it would be paralyzing. I have a mild, extra mild. I have no idea what that one is. And I hear really good things about that English banger. Actually, you know what? I think I'm kind of done with sausages. 
You might call Bee's comedy divinely inspired. Growing up in Toronto, she went to Catholic school where she developed a serious crush. I wanted to marry him so badly. So like scribbling in your notebook at school, like Mrs. Mrs. Samantha Jesus, Jesus H. Christ. I don't think you're supposed to put the H in. I think that my dad just would say that. <laughs> so if I said to you the name Robert Powell, would you know who that oh, was? Oh, actually, I don't. Who's you Robert? Don't. Oh, wait. Maybe no, you do. <gasps> oh, yeah, no, I do. Yeah, no, yeah. That's Jesus of Nazareth. That's my husband. That's my alt husband. You're a strong second choice. <laughs> There's nothing, no shame in being the runner-up. To Jesus, yeah, solid number two. <laughs> that solid number two is her actual husband, actor and producer Jason Jones. They met 20 years ago. It was Jones who convinced her to join a sketch comedy troupe. And I did it, and I loved it. Baby's on fire again. Damn it. Daily Show producers came to Toronto looking for new talent. She signed on as one of its comedic reporters in 2003. It's like you can't even go on the radio anymore and condemn a whole subset of people to hell without getting some blowback. Well, when you put it that way, it does sound rather arrogant, myopic, narrow-minded and bigoted. Good. Then I've done my job. Jason Jones came on board two years later. We have talked about this. You cannot come to work without pants. We've talked about this. B says she learned a lot from Jon Stewart. His work ethic is impeccable. He really is the first person to get there and the last person to leave. And I think we had a kind of freedom that is really unparalleled in that world to really explore what we thought was funny and to go out in the world. How long have you two been married? I don't know, like a thousand years. All right. Yeah, we should really practice second base. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Mm. <laughs> Both B and Jones left the show last year. Not long before, Stewart himself moved on. Didn't she deserve a shot at The Daily Show? <sighs> host, Samantha B. Uh, she would have been a terrific host, yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. But Why not? You're going to have to ask the powers that be at Comedy Central that question. You, Frustrate you, though? Uh, uh, it's a tough thing. I would say impossible thing of replacing the irreplaceable. These days, along with raising their three children, they are both executive producers of Joan's upcoming TBS comedy, The Detour. Spirited young man. See, somebody like. He's an idiot. And they both produce Full Frontal. Is it a jorts joke? Is, is jorts better than shorty shorts? I have no idea what jorts are. Jean shorts. It's a funny word. What do you want to bring to the table to help her make her mark? I mean, I think I see my job as a sounding board for her. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not telling her what to do. I've never put words in her mouth. I suggest, hey, can this be sharper? Can this be funnier? Some nerd told me that would be funny. <laughs> she often ignores me, which is, which is, you know, to her detriment. But whatever. It's fine. Johnny Carson and David Letterman ruled late night for decades. Chelsea Handler lasted seven years. Joan Rivers, only one. My dreams are all panic dreams <laughs> from when I used to waiter. They're all terrible panic dreams. How will you measure success? I think that I will measure success by how much I'm enjoying the experience, quite honestly. That is maybe selfish. No. <laughs> but I feel like I, if I don't contain it to whether I enjoy doing it or not, I'll go crazy. So far, so good. Looks like she's just one of the boys. Could I put my hand on your knee? Absolutely not. I've never felt more beautiful. You look hot. Thank you. <laughs> Coming up in memoriam. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It happened this past week. The loss of two veterans of the public stage. Good to see you. Buddy Cianci was the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island for a total of 21 years. I will support the A natural politician. Cianci was first elected in 1974 at age 32. 
He was forced from office twice over the years, the first time for pleading no contest to assault. The defendant punched him, hit him, slapped him. The second time for a racketeering conviction that sent him to prison for four and a half years. The demographics of the city have really changed sure since have. the last mayor. When our Mo Rocker caught up with him in 2014, he was making one last futile bid for mayor, minus his trademark toupee. Why did you get rid of the toupee? <laughs> well, you know, I, I didn't feel a need for it anymore. There was no need to, to wear it anymore. What you see is what you get. But despite his misdeeds, he was beloved by many for his role in sparking a downtown renaissance in Providence. Buddy Cianci was 74. Abe Vigoda wasn't a criminal, but he first came to fame portraying one. Brzezini wants to arrange a meeting. In the 1972 film, The Godfather. He played a mobster about to be robed out for the act of betraying crime boss Michael Corleone. Tell Mike it was only business. Fish. Pagoda went on to a long and more cheerful run as a comic detective on the TV series Barney Miller. You won't believe this, but according to their records, I'm deceased. It's probably a mistake. A mistake People magazine actually made in 1982 when it referred to him as the late Abe Vigoda. In reality, Abe Vigoda didn't pass away until this past Tuesday morning. He was 94. Coming up, Breaking Bad's Bob Odenkirk yeah, well, uh, breaks out. I, I wish it was just luck, but I think I'm really smart. Um, <laughs> a small role in the hit series Breaking Bad was a big break for actor Bob Odenkirk. It put him on the road to his own show, a road very different from the one he'd been traveling. Lee Cowan has our Sunday profile. I have uh, an ability to uh, put myself out there. Yeah. Um, it's called poor boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> it's called something's broken inside that man. Professionally, there's certainly nothing broken about Bob Odenkirk, although his breakout role did involve a little breaking bad. Hi, I'm Saul Goodman. Did you know that you have rights? The Constitution says you do, and so do I. As the smarmy underworld lawyer, Saul Goodman, in the AMC Smash series, he could talk his way out of just about anything. He's gonna sing like Celine Dion, regardless of what you do to me. Right now, you out. 10 minutes ago, go on. There are laws, detective. Have your kindergarten teacher read them to you, right? Go grab a juice box. Have a nap. Go on. <laughs> he comes in like a hurricane, and he's got all these words. He's got so much to, he's got so much to say. He just comes in with an avalanche of words. Writer Peter Gould that, that created the Saul character basically as a one-off. Odenkirk was sure he wasn't going to last past a few episodes. When you initially took the role for Breaking Bad, you thought you were going to get killed off every other oh, week, right? Every time I read a script, I thought Saul Goodman's going to die. He was a perfect character to kill. Better call Saul. <laughs> but Odenkirk so impressed both Gould and showrunner Vince Gilligan that they decided Breaking Bad couldn't live without him. Once we realized just how many layers he could exhibit as a, as a character, we started to realize more and more we should, we should do more with this guy. You know. Good afternoon. Even before Breaking Bad ended, they were thinking of giving Odenkirk his very own spinoff. Come on, let's hear it. As a rule, spinoffs of shows that big generally have a pretty dismal history. It's showtime, folks. But already, Odenkirk's performance in Better Call Saul has earned him Emmy and Golden Globe nominations for Best Actor in a drum. I'm gonna kill it. Your Honor, I'm very sorry. I'll never do it again. Say what? Just, Your Honor, I'm very sorry, and I'll never do it again. I don't know why people decided I could do this, but I'm not gonna keep, I'm not gonna look at it too closely. But there's you... there's some real actor somewhere <laughs> <laughs> who is not working. It is pretty remarkable, given that Odenkirk wasn't known for doing drama at all. For 25 years, he'd been making his living as a sketch comedy writer instead. Did you wonder what kind of actor he would be? We were, uh, 
that's a that's a darn good question. I guess we should have wondered instead of just taking a flying leap. Comedy is in Odenkirk's blood. He's been a rabid fan of Monty Python since childhood, and he's made a career out of elevating the absurd on stage. In fact, I am in the midst of being interviewed by the illustrious CBS Sunday Morning News program. He decided nothing would be more absurd than to do part of our interview during his performance at the famous improv comedy club, the Upright Citizens Brigade in Hollywood. How you, you doing, man? I'm good. You You've never done anything like this. Not on stage. I've never done an interview in front of a live audience before, no. Yeah, but... but... <laughs> Odenkirk relishes the unexpected, and I'm here to tell you, this was certainly that. Uh, how often do people come up to you on the street and ask you to say better call Saul? Oh, you, you know, too much. <laughs> one, yeah. one time is too much. But also people get the name wrong, which is so weird to me. Gotta get Sal! <laughs> it's like if you saw somebody from 60 Minutes and you were like, 38 minutes! <laughs> right? I'm close. His case of fans mistaking his identity became fodder for the improv group. Lee's gonna join us, and oh, you'll yeah, see. No, you'll you see, it'll be good. Which, reluctantly, also included me. Thanks, Bob. Well, you, guys, you guys get it right, I'll sign something for you. Uh, uh, Paul? Bob. The, the, Paul, the Paul, Paul dialogue. The Paul, Paul Diaries. Paul Let's face it, he carried Paul me. Odenkirk started writing comedy sketches when he was in high school. When he was 14, he saw a show at the famed Second City Theater in Chicago, and it changed his life. Man, that was an inspiration. Because why? Man, the energy in that theater was so great. He eventually got a job at Second City himself, where he met comedian Chris Farley. Soon, both were at Saturday Night Live. Farley on stage, Odenkirk in the SNL writer's room. I was able to write the sketch for Chris, the motivational speaker, and that was fun. You're going to be doing a lot of doobie rolling when you're living in a van down by the river. The funniest characterization and physicalization ever. Although he worked with Conan O'Brien, Ben Stiller, and had a host of well-placed comedic cameos, including on Seinfeld. What about my dream of dating a doctor? I'm sorry, Elaine. I always knew that after I became a doctor, I would dump whoever I was with and find someone better. That's the dream of becoming a doctor. <laughs> He's most remembered for his HBO sketch comedy series, Mr. Show with Bob and David. On July 4th of this year, America will blow up the moon. He'd achieved what he had always wanted as a kid. And yet, something was still missing. I did a lot of sketch comedy, and I enjoy writing it, and I enjoy being in it, but I've never thought that I was, uh, I belonged there as a performer. And here's where Hollywood gets pretty weird. He never auditioned for Breaking Bad. He hadn't even seen the show. But Vince Gilligan had seen him and saw something behind Odenkirk's jokes. Well, if you can do comedy, you can do drama. I don't know that the reverse is always necessarily true. We really thought of Bob Odenkirk pretty much from the get-go. When he got the call, the funny man thought it was, well, all a joke. Yeah, I really put no uh, hope in it at all. <laughs> None. I just went, okay, let's talk about what that would be. That'll be a fun lunch at the Chateau Marmont. <laughs> While he may make fun of himself, others started taking Bob Odenkirk very seriously. Director Alexander Payne cast him alongside Bruce Dern in his Oscar-nominated film, Nebraska. Mom and I are looking at reality, and you better start too. A home is in his best interest. Bob Odenkirk has become, as one writer put it, an acting powerhouse, even if the former so comedy sketch writer doesn't necessarily and believe it himself. I still don't entirely trust this performance thing. Don't you really? Not entirely. But I still think I'm a couple years away from talking about myself as an actor and meaning it and, and believing it myself. I just think you gotta, come on, you gotta earn it. Next, a story with Bite. He suggest, uh, he says, uh, that uh, that he uh... 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. There he is, ladies and gentlemen. This coming Tuesday is Groundhog Day, a day which has its origins in the Christian holiday of Candlemas. Churchgoers traditionally celebrate that day with the blessing of candles, hence the name. And beginning centuries ago, people also looked to this midwinter day as a sort of long-range weather forecast. A clear day meant a lengthy winter, cloudy weather, and early spring. They also looked for clues from hibernating animals such as hedgehogs, badgers, and bears, some of whom briefly interrupt their slumber around the same time. German immigrants to Pennsylvania settled on the groundhog as their creature of choice, a Punxsutawney newspaper first declared February 2nd to be Groundhog Day back in 1886. The next year, true believers made their first pilgrimage to a now-famous clearing outside of town known as Gobbler's Knob. So you might be wondering just how often have Punxsutawney Phil's predictions been right over the years. According to most sources, just 39% of the time. Plenty of other towns celebrate Groundhog Day as well, or try to. Here's Steve Hartman. When you think of Groundhog Day, you probably don't think of Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. But there's as much passion here as Puxatawney. They've got a wooden woodchuck in the town square. The local bakery sells groundhog cakes. In fact, the only thing they're missing is a real groundhog. This was the Sun Prairie groundhog. You may remember him from last year, when then-Mayor John Freund lent him his ear, and he took it. He, suggest, uh, he says uh, that, uh, that he uh, didn't see a shadow. Shortly after chewing his way through the mayor's ear, the Sun Prairie Groundhog chewed his way through a metal cage and escaped. Naturally, the town wanted a replacement woodchuck, and who wouldn't if a woodchuck could be found? Which apparently is easier said than done. You cannot capture it to exhibit it. Ty Gauger is Sun Prairie's Groundhog Day event planner. Memorabilia from Groundhog Day past. She says they started celebrating here in 1949 using groundhogs they caught. Been a tradition ever since. But now it's not so easy getting a live groundhog. It becomes very complicated. There's more than one license? Oh, yes. There's more than one type of license. She says you need one from the the state, one from the federal government. And if you can't find a certified groundhog breeder in your area... So then you would need an import license. We're going to be talking about the groundhog ceremony. The new mayor, a guy named Paul Esser, says it's hardly worth the effort. And not just because of all the red tape or because he's concerned about his own ears. After last year... He says it's simply not humane to hold up groundhogs like we do. Yeah, I don't like that. No. His proposal? He's a wild animal. To chuck the live woodchuck idea entirely. Maybe we'll have somebody in a groundhog costume. What about a gerbil? Would you have an issue with a gerbil? He's domesticated, so I would not have. February 2nd isn't gerbil day. It's groundhog day. We got to have a groundhog. Because that's the way it's always been, and that's the way I like it. That's true. Around Sun Prairie. It would have to be a groundhog of some sort, wouldn't it? The consensus is clear. What do you think of a groundhog day celebration with no groundhog? It would just be winter from there on. Ah, and you were worried about climate change. Fortunately, Ty did find a loner groundhog for this week's celebration, which gives her a whole nother year to find a permanent replacement. You shouldn't be doing that with a groundhog. And it gives the mayor time, too. How would you propose celebrating Thanksgiving? To find a way to balance (laughs) on his soapbox. (laughs) Mayor, anytime. I've got to work on that one a little bit. Front and center, Coldplay. Next. And later. All of my friends' children know me as Faith, and my kids know my peers by their first names, too. Are Mr. and Mrs. obsolete? Coldplay made clocks a hit back in 2002. Fast forward to next Sunday when the band plays at halftime in the Super Bowl. Right now, though, they talk with Anthony Mason for the record. 
On the lot of Sony Pictures Studios in Los Angeles, in Soundstage 14, Coldplay started rehearsals this past week for their Super Bowl halftime show. This is the Super Bowl stage. This is... Without any of the gadgetry. Right. So you've basically created a stage that's the same size as the Super Bowl stage? Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> For the band's four principals, guitarist Johnny Buckland, drummer Will Champion, bass player Guy Berryman, and frontman Chris Martin, it's the biggest gig of their career. What's the audience for this? It's like a gazillion people. I think it's three gazillion, actually. <laughs> if something goes wrong, that's going to be a big part, <laughs> a big part of it. My daughter said the sweetest thing yesterday. She said, how are you feeling about Super Bowl? Of course, we're a little bit nervous. She said, Dad, the worst that can happen is that you'll get turned into a meme. <laughs> That's what she said. And after a month or so, people will just forget. <laughs> their biggest show will also be their shortest. Sorry, Will, I messed up. Do it again. I love the whole concept of trying to present your entire musical life in 12 and a half minutes. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a great challenge. Have you figured out what you're going to do yet? We've possibly got 11 good minutes. <laughs> so we have some special guests and they'll cover the rest. <laughs> So they're going to be like fans all down here, right? Yeah. And then the bit where you come on to sing, you're cool with that? Yeah, um, got just give me the lyrics, I'll be fine. Those guests have not been officially named, but there have been plenty of hints. This may be Beyonce's footprint. <laughs> now, let me just... I'd say she was here about four hours ago. Let's look for a Bruno one. Beyonce, who's in Coldplay's new video for the song Him for the Weekend, is expected to join them with another halftime show veteran, Bruno Mars. Have you guys actually rehearsed with them? No, not on this. Not we, on this I thing? think we're going to in a couple of hours. Cool. I hope so. I spoke to one of the other artists who'd done it a few years ago, and he said, You've got to, it's got to be muscle memory. When you go out there, it's got to be all down and just. Well, I'll tell you it was Bruce Springsteen, because I, I realized I was starting to do his gruff accent. <laughs> you gotta know every note, man. That's what Bruce said? 12 minutes. It ain't long, but it's long enough. <laughs> look at the stars, look how they shine for you. The British band that broke through behind their hit Yellow in 2000. And has sold some 80 million records will celebrate its 20th anniversary this year. Does it feel like 20 years? No, not at all. More than half our lives. One of the testaments is that you guys are still together. Yeah. And Will and Guy said you guys are as, as close as, as probably you've ever been. Did they? That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever they say, we do. I find that it's, we're in this sort of weird limbo. We're not an emerging band anymore, so there's a, we're, we're no longer a new band, and we're certainly not quite at sort of heritage we're entering value. A new phase of denial yeah. about how old we it's are. The midlife, <laughs> it's the midlife crisis. They are, as one critic called them, the biggest, youngish rock band going. <laughs> youngish. I like that. <laughs> happy we to just be... had the ish added. <laughs> well, now we're ish. Do you feel youngish? I'm happy to be called youngish, I think. Feels good. Is ish a compliment or a. It's, yeah. it's far from the worst thing Coldplay's been called. The New York Times once branded the Mellow Rockers the most insufferable band of the decade. But Martin says the insults don't sting anymore. We sound like we always wanted to, and we feel at peace with what we've done to get here. Which implies there was a period of time you weren't entirely at peace with it. Well, I think when you start a band, your purpose is never to offend anybody. And when you get to a certain level of success, and it, it's apparent that you have offended some people, yeah. it took me and I think it took us a while to let that all go. Mm -hmm. so, and if people, some people don't like you, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it really is. I, part of me would just prefer to have a sprung floor there because it's a really good jumping place. It's up to all of us, but I would choose that one.
The band's now planning a new stadium tour for this summer, their first in four years. This is a bit of an eyeful. Oh. Oh. So, do you like being on the road? I love I love being on the road. When, when we're on stage, I feel like I'm saying what I want to say in the way I want to say it. When I'm with my kids, I feel like that's really me, and when we're on stage, I feel that too. What do your kids think of your music? We make it into our kids' playlists still, which is good. There's such a high threshold with them, you know, because they're not impressed with... Anything. So when you play a song for your kids, you a little nervous? Yeah, especially this album. Martin's children, with former wife Gwyneth Paltrow, Moses, who's now nine, and Apple, who's 11, sing on Coldplay's latest album, A Head Full of Dreams. We have a lot of guest singers on A Head Full of Dreams. Including your ex-wife? Yep. How did that happen? Just naturally. In the song Everglow, the actress is barely audible in the background as Martin sings, so how, come how come things move on? How come cars don't slow when it feels like the end of my world? Is that something that, that she'd said to you? Yeah. And so you wanted her to sing it? Yeah. That's generous, I think. Of her, yeah. <laughs> so if you love someone, you should let them know Oh, the light that you give me will ever glow When we first talked this month, Woo! it was just a week after David Bowie died. When the news came through about David, I, that's... Yeah, so I think it's the... F I don't know how to talk about it yet. It's very strange to me that he's not here anymore. But he was, in my experience, just lovely. Martin says he once asked Bowie to play on a song that had come to him in a dream. He was so wonderfully humorous and kind in his dismissal. <laughs> <laughs> we were on the phone and I said, what do you think about this? And he said, oh, this is not one of your best, Chris. And that was it. And what were you thinking? I was like, you know what, he's right. This is <laughs> <laughs> But at least I can say we sort of work together. <laughs> Next Sunday, the best-selling band of this century will play before what could be the biggest TV audience ever. It's a very different kind of performance, isn't it? I think I'd be more nervous if they said you've got to play in the Super Bowl. Uh, that would be way worse. <laughs> like the title of this Coldplay song, it's the adventure of a lifetime. Faith Saley takes us back. Next. Somewhere between my childhood and my kids' childhood, young people stopped using Mr. and Mrs. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Isn't it about time to give the formal address a formal burial? So says our contributor, Faith Saley. When I was a kid, we called every teacher, every parent, anyone over the age of 20, it seemed, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. We'd never dream of using a grown-up's first name. I still address the parents of my childhood best friend as Mr. and Mrs. James. I remember feeling a frisson of gleeful maturity at four years old when I was invited to call my dance teacher Miss Eileen. I was so excited to utter her first name that I named my pet chicken after her. But somewhere between my childhood and my kids' childhood, young people stopped using Mr. and Mrs. And most of us stopped introducing ourselves that way. All of my friends' children know me as Faith, and my kids know my peers by their first names, too. The most formality my son articulates is when he calls our beloved dog walker Uncle Juan. Surely there are places in which youth still address their elders strictly as Mr. and Mrs. But I do think this trend towards using first names will only progress. And that's okay with me. Our society, more than ever, tries to stay young. Nothing ages you more immediately than being called Mrs. We may be adults, but we don't feel old. 
We're becoming parents at an age when our parents became grandparents. Check out this photo of my grandmother's on my parents' wedding day. My grandmother was my age at her daughter's wedding. Decades ago, graduating to Mr. and Mrs. was seen as an achievement. Boys felt like men. Girls felt like winners when they received their MRS degree. Plenty of women today, however, go by Ms. and have a different last name than their spouses or their kids. We're also just a lot more casual. Ladies don't wear white gloves. Old folks wear jean shorts on airplane rides. And who has the time to stand in line at Starbucks while the barista asks you to spell your surname as she writes Mr. Whoever on your coffee cup? But mostly, I think it demonstrates that we've become a more egalitarian society and points to an evolution in the way we look at children. We treat them as equals because they're people. They are our equals, not in experience, but in importance. They do need boundaries and rules, but they are people with unique needs and their own kind of wisdom. Just as kids need to learn to respect their elders, we are a society that increasingly respects our youth. I totally honor the wishes of people who want my children, or me, to call them Mr. or Mrs. But please call me Faith, whether you're 2 or 92. You can even name your chicken after me. So we are going to win. Next. We are going to make America great again. I will not need a tour of the White House. Curtain going up on Iowa. Just one day now to go until the Iowa caucuses. Our Major Garrett has been tracking the campaigns from the very start. We are going to make America great again. We need a political revolution. Welcome to the presidential campaign that breaks all the rules. Let me say, I'm a maniac, and everyone on this stage is stupid, fat, and ugly. And Ben, you're a terrible surgeon. <laughs> Now that we've gotten the Donald Trump portion out of the way. <laughs> There's the you can't say that rule. Donald Trump breaks it almost daily. ISIS is making a tremendous amount of money. I would bomb the shit out of them. No Oval Office vacancy for socialists? Bernie, Bernie, Tell Bernie Sanders. So can a socialist be the next president of the United States? A democratic socialist certainly can and will be. An armada of campaign cash and a famous last name have never met less. I'm an establishment because my dad, the greatest man alive, was president of the United States, and my brother, who I adore as well as a fantastic brother, was president. When my husband was president, we had 23 million new jobs, but incomes went up for everybody. Good morning, folks. Please. And sitting vice presidents don't have the inside track. Unfortunately, I believe we're out of time, the time necessary to mount a winning campaign for the nomination. Then there's the all-men rule. Clinton has the best chance in history to break a 240-year-old glass ceiling. I cannot imagine anyone being more of an outsider than the first woman president. I mean, really. How about the rule of vulnerabilities? And that Pounce. Is that the American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Thank you. Me too. Sanders didn't. In presidential politics, governors and former governors are supposed to have built-in advantages. The fact is, for seven years, I had to make these decisions after 9-11. It worked for George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, and Jimmy Carter, but not Republicans Bobby Jindal, Rick Perry, and Scott Walker. I will suspend my campaign immediately. They've all dropped out. We are a generous and compassionate people. While Democrat Martin O'Malley struggles in single digits. And most bizarre of all... Donald Trump has chosen not to attend this evening's presidential debate. Attendance at a primetime televised debate isn't even mandatory. Is it, for me personally, a good thing, a bad thing? Will I get more votes? Will I get less votes? Nobody knows. Who the hell knows? If I'm elected president... What about governing what experience? Politicians with the least, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Trump, and even Ben Carson, have turned that question upside down. You can make her the next president of the United States, Hillary Clinton. It's hurt Hillary Clinton as much as it's helped. I will not need a tour of the White House. The only rule that seems to apply is the old rules no longer apply. Hi, how are you? New ones are being written daily, and the improvisational results in Iowa and down the road are anyone's guess. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.